Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. I am Tobias and I'm back again with Yusuf. What's up? Another week, another episode, and another chapter in my never-ending house-building project. Quick update on that one. We started digging uh, the piece of land to make the, the groundwork. That was in June this year. And now we still have about five more months of, of, of actually doing the, the building stuff. And I visit the land perhaps once per week. And every time I go there, there's a gazillion of questions and things I I don't I don't know anything about. So it's a lot of digging and plumbing and cutting and measuring. But what's been fun is that at certain points, perhaps once a month, there's a, there's an inconsistency in the official technical diagrams and and the design I had in my head and what the architect designed based on what I had in my head. And and how we've been resolving those is that I bring my tablet to the builders, we open the 3D model. It's, it's a BIMX file that you open, and then we gather around my tablet and, and we go through the 3D model. Ah, oh, that's how it's supposed to be connected. So let's get back to work. And it's fun because you have so many technical diagrams, you know, these large printouts that fill the whole table. But at times, something is, is not somehow described in those papers clear enough. And then you go to the 3D model, and you sort of need the 3D to understand the different angles, because the paper can only show you X and Y, but often not Z. So that's, that's sort of been, I, I think it it consumes my mind quite a bit, even though I'm not doing any of the digging and plumbing and cutting, but I'm sort of overseeing a lot of that. And I'm happy it will be done in about five months from now. But so far, it's been relatively easy. Sounds like an opportunity, and maybe that already exists, but someone to bring in augmented reality using a pair of goggles. So you can actually stand there, look at the house ground, and the 3D model is not on the tablet, but actually in front of you. So you can see the, the projected house on top of the, the base where, you, where you're going to actually put the house. So you could see this 3D model in front of you when you take a look and, and kind of walk around inside of it. That'd be cool. I actually had this in mind, not, not specifically a HoloLens approach, if you will, but I, I did have the plan initially that I would build the house in Minecraft because it would be relatively easy. And Minecraft allows you to do the 3D with the, with the glasses. And now that you mentioned this, I, I think I know what I'm doing next weekend. Well, there you go. Um, so on my side, and what I've been up to is also around the house. Uh, so we recently moved to, to our new, very old house, uh, but new for us. And it's time to now start planning the garden work for the next year and what we want to do. And I think the, the focus here for me is to put some kind of jacuzzi or some kind of hot tub outdoors and also an outdoor shower and some wooden decks. So I'm now planning this because that 
I think these are pretty small things and small measures to make every day a little bit better, perhaps. And I go a lot on my bike. I go a lot on, on long hikes with the family. And we do a lot of uh, working out generally in our house. And you know, post-workout, it would be really nice to just emerge down into the jacuzzi and sit there for a while and, and do the stretching. Uh, and the outdoor shower would probably be a compliment because we, we only have one shower in, indoors at the moment in this fairly small house. So we downgraded the size of our house, but we upgraded the location. So the outdoor shower, it's a project now I'm, I'm planning. So I'm also doing 3D models of my garden. Maybe I can bring some augmented reality into that as well, which would be fun. But in the end, I, I think this is a fairly fun thing to plan. And actually, I'm doing everything on paper. So I'm measuring the centimeters out in the garden, and then I'm putting this down on paper. And this is the way, this is the way <laughs> that I'm doing things. And I, I really enjoy that, you know, becoming a bit more analog. We spend all days being digital. So uh, pretty fun to do the planning work around this. Then implementation-wise, we'll see how that ends up. Uh, but the planning phase is pretty fun. So, so before we dive into the episode, let me let me focus a little bit on the outdoor shower thing, because that's something I see on on a Netflix documentary. Somebody built this amazing outdoor shower next to the pool, and I'm sort of thinking, oh, that would be great, but I'm not certain how I would need to insulate everything there, considering the harsh Finnish winter that's that's soon coming. But do you have such worries because you live quite a bit more south to, compared to me? We do have the same worries. Uh, I guess you have them a little bit more than I do. It's plenty more winter where you are in, in terms of Scandinavian measures. Uh, we do have that consideration here as well. So the outdoor shower I'm putting up is going to use one of those tanks that you can warm up uh, with electricity. But you take this indoors when it hits below Celsius. And the reason I'm opting for that is because I, I can pull isolated and insulated pipes all the way out there uh, with warm, warm water. But the problem is if it's below freezing and you take a shower, your half of your garden is going to be a sky, how do you call it? A skate rink. Uh, so then, then you can go ice skating and I don't want that. So when it hits below freezing point, I don't want to use the outdoor shower just to keep the area clean. Because otherwise, walking to and from the jacuzzi, for example, if you have one of those, you know, it's it's just going to be ice uh, because you took a shower, and I don't want that. So, when winter comes, the uh, the shower gets disconnected. Makes makes perfect sense. Perhaps one day we'll do an episode and talk about the different shower models and approaches and designs <laughs> that we are coming up in. The sure, there's a way to connect it to the cloud. Yeah, I I bet. So today, this is episode 101, Dial into Azure. And when we were designing and planning for this episode, this, this perhaps stems from two ongoing, I wouldn't say projects, but designs I'm currently working with. And the, the idea is how do we connect users to Azure if those said users are not at the office? But before we dive into this one, Dialups. I wanted to include dialups as a phrase in the episode title. Toby, I, I know you had a modem back in the day. What model and make? What was the first one you got? I did have a modem. And just to, to prove to you that I'm not as young as I look, 
I also know that a modem is actually a short an abbreviation for modular demodulator uh, or modulator demodulator. Don't ask me how I know that, but in the 90s, I studied a lot around modems and how they work and what is this phone line thing that you connect to and why am I getting ones and zeros to my computer now? So the, the make, I think this was some kind of, a, you know, this is so long ago. I think it was called US Robotics. I think this is the brand at every single store in Sweden sold. And we had a, I think my first modem was a 33.6 modem. So 33.6 kilobyte, you know, and, and that was pretty cool. And soon after that, my neighbor got a 56K modem and, you know, it was light years faster. That's my experiment experience. I don't know, you know, the exact model. I think the brand was US Robotics. I don't know if they even exist anymore, but I, this was in the early 90s. So I was pretty young. I think I was perhaps six or eight years old when we got the, the first modem and I didn't know what it was, but it made a really funny sound when you turn it on. So that's what I did. I turned it on and I listened to the sound and I laughed and then I turned it off. The, the first one I had was also a US robotics one. I, I think those were quite prevalent in, in Europe at the time. So for me, I think it was 1988 perhaps or 89. And that was a 1200 bits per second model, super duper slow. I, I think just us ha having the recording through the internet now with our voice on is consuming so much more. And I, I then upgraded that to uh, 2400, 2400 uh, bits per second, and eventually all the way to 14.4K, which was an amazingly fast one. Uh, so modems, I haven't seen any of those in the wild in at least 15 almost 20 years now. Uh, so for Azure, modems obviously are out of the question, even if your connectivity might be poor at times. And now that everybody has been working remotely for, I actually looked this up, about 550 days here in the Nordics. Uh, I don't think anybody really struggles with the connectivity all that much, but I still on a weekly basis when I attend different teams and Zoom calls, there's often somebody joining the call saying, yay, I'm working from the summer cabin, the connectivity is really poor, so let me turn off video, which of course makes, makes perfect sense. But today we have users who need to access Azure resources and data, so we need to get those users connected to Azure. And, and what follows is, let's take a look at the different, different approaches and services here, but also some of the use cases that I'm seeing now uh, with a couple of customers. So typically you would, you would start using a VPN with Azure to get your own premises connected to an Azure virtual network and Azure VNet. That probably is, is, is the oldest use case there is. And for this, you have the site to site VPN connect this on premises network to this Azure VNet and call it a day. Uh, I, I know Toby that's you don't have the specific need, obviously, because you've been working from home. Uh, but do you see this in any companies you interact with? Do you see still the need for having this on-premises connect to Azure through a site-to-site -site VPN demands? 
Uh, I do see that need. And mainly it's when you want to protect all the resources you have in Azure and you turn on all the firewalls and um, kind of um, restrict all inbound traffic unless it's coming from inside of the virtual network. And unless you yourself and your client that you're operating from is on that VNet, then you cannot access the resources. So from, from that angle, if you set up a you know, secured dev environment or a QA environment or whatever it is that should not be accessible by someone else, then I see this as a, a pretty good opportunity to set up the VPN connection. So you can get on the same VNet as the resources and then access the web app or make a deployment or make changes in your key vault, whatever it is. Uh, so you don't have to keep everything open to the public and you don't have to modify. You can also just enable the firewall inside of the app service and say, enable access restrictions and disallow everything except for this IP range. Problem with that is IPs change all the time. And when we have a distributed team of 30 people, how do we keep these lists up to date? With a VPN connection, that would be a lot easier. So we can in Azure just grant uh, the groups of people access to the resources that they need access to through the VPN from their machine, they connect and that's it. So I, I see the need for myself in this regard, but also for, for other customers that we've worked with either have an on-prem network or like you're working remotely, you have your home, home office, maybe you're working from a coffee shop. You don't want to allow the IP address from a coffee shop to access all your internal Azure resources. So a VPN connection definitely makes sense in this case. Agreed on this one. And it was perhaps three, four years ago that if you signed up to work with a new customer on, on whatever technology thing with them, they would often start the whole process of ramping you up by, by creating an on-premises AD account for you and, and, and provisioning a VPN connectivity from your home office or your office to their internal network. But nowadays, obviously, it's more about Azure and Microsoft 365. So site-to-site -side VPN, I still see the need, especially for enterprises here. Perhaps for smaller companies, it depends on what you have in on-premises. You might have printers, you might have your Active Directory domain controller still in on-premises. And for this reason, you often need the site-to-site -side VPN in between. And for users to connect, they can use point to site. And this is, is, this is sort of circling back to where we started dialing into Azure. Users need a VPN client, which of course is built into Windows 10 and Windows 11. And they open that connection to get access to Azure, to a given virtual network in Azure. But then you can route that traffic from the Azure VNet once you're connected to allow access back to on-premises. So as you said, if the user's, user is in a coffee shop and needs to print out something, and for one reason or another, they, they're not using universal printing, they would then open the VPN to Azure and that would expose the printer through the site-to-site -side VPN back to on-prem. And this is perhaps what I'm seeing less and less now, but in those scenarios where I'm seeing the need for this, it's often because there's something left behind in the on-premises, in, in, the, in the actual office. There's something we need to access remotely, but we don't want to go physically to the office anymore. Let's, let's imagine this way. Let's say you worked remotely from your home. So instead of working from home, you would go to, let's say, to Italy, and you would work remotely three months from there. 
would you then need something to connect back to your home network? For me, I I don't have a requirement on doing that um, because I I pretty much use point to site VPN in this case, so I can access all the Azure resources wherever I am as long as I carry the devices I have, which are in tune, compliant. They are enrolled in my organization. They are secure. And using whatever connection I have, I can then tunnel everything through a secure VPN. So I can actually do anything from everywhere. And I, I made a deliberate choice that no matter where I am, I should be fully capable of working with everything that I have. So I don't want to be dependent on my home office. The only thing in my home office that I'm actually dependent on is to record the podcast. I need my microphone, which is the only thing in my office that is actually something that is a requirement. Everything else is inside a laptop or in the cloud. All righty. The need for the VPN, I thought I had the need myself because I've, I've got plenty of stuff in my on-prem, in my home office, servers and, and NAS devices and whatnot. But then when I was gone for a week, I realized, well, there's literally nothing I couldn't access through HTTPS. And that could be over a VPN or non-VPN. But there's, there's a couple of devices that ideally I'd like to access remotely, but without the hassle of, of having the site-to-site -side VPN to Azure first from my home office. I used to have that, but it's a bit of moving parts. And oftentimes you don't really need that for a couple of weeks and then you feel, feel stupid for paying for that. And I, test, I, I started test driving this third-party solution. It's called TailScale. Have you ever, ever heard of that? What it does for you is it creates a VPN tunnel or a sort of backbone where you can hook up all of your devices. And then you have your own private network in the cloud, as they say. And through that, you can connect to your different devices. I don't think it's perhaps optimal for a lot of companies, but for somebody like me who just needs to test a lot of things, it, it felt really fluid and dynamic. I, I didn't have to provision any gateways or, or anything like this. But for a company, what they need next is a VPN gateway. So in order to create the site-to-site -side VPN or, and or the point-to-site VPN, you need the VPN gateway. And you provision that through Azure portal or using a script. And technically, it's a virtual machine managed by Microsoft in Azure. And actually, I think it's two VMs to, to, to make it highly available. And you can use that to connect cross-premises meaning on-premises to Azure, or VNet to VNet, or point-to-site, meaning clients can connect to Azure. And that's essentially what, what you're paying for. So then, can you come up with any, any further use cases beyond just users accessing Azure with the hopes of accessing the on-prem? Can you come up with any additional use cases that users would need point to site to, to access anything in Azure? So speaking from the experience I have and, and our requirements, uh, the things I mentioned before, it's pretty much what, what we use it for and what a lot of customers use it for. That said, I'm sure that there is a plethora of use cases for organizations of perhaps slightly bigger size than, than ours. So coming back to my use cases I mentioned before, it's about us as developers or us as QA engineers or us as uh, operators of our cloud solutions that need to secure our access and secure the uh, 
you know, a network and, and get our way into the VNet, which is the point to site, and that works pretty well. Um, other than that, I don't have any use cases uh, that I can think of myself. I can probably list a dozen use cases for why a VPN is required in certain cases, but we don't have those. So from my, my own point of view, point to, to site VPN is pretty much what we need. Put the VPN gateway, connect to it, you're in the VNet and you can access the resources. As soon as you shut down uh, the VPN, you're out of the network. For me, I, I've always thought that the main reason for having a point-to-site solution is that if you have developers or IT pros working on something within your tenant, perhaps you're a company, you have a bunch of Microsoft partners working on something and they need access to services in your Azure tenant. I, I thought the, the easy requirement would be to say, okay, we are utilizing point-to-site, please use this in order to access anything we have in Azure, mainly the virtual machines. But I often get a lot of pushback from developers and IT pros that they don't want to install a yet another setup to access something. And they feel just using a regular HTTPS connection with a heavily secured account should be enough. And I feel it often is enough. And now for virtual machines, you can of course utilize Azure Bastion host, the just-in-time remote access to security center, or just configuring the, the network security group to allow access from a specific IP. But, but beyond devs and IT pros, file storage in Azure, meaning an Azure storage account, where you migrate your files and create a file share so that users can map that file share as a classic drive letter to access the files. For one reason or another, you couldn't perhaps migrate those to Teams or SharePoint or OneDrive. And to connect to this securely, I would advocate perhaps to use the VPN. Otherwise, your endpoint would be exposed to the public internet, and that's often not a great idea. Um, but these are perhaps the main, I would say, main reasons for using point-to-site. Access something in Azure, access on-prem through Azure, access a file storage, and that's mostly it. So, so for point-to-site, perhaps this is worth highlighting here. If anybody listening on this is perhaps considering setting it up, uh, traditionally, when the clients authenticate to Azure, when they initiate the point-to-site connection, they would either use a certificate or radius-based authentication. But now, and I haven't looked this up, but I saw last week that there's a third option, which is Azure AD. So authenticate using your Azure AD account. And this has often been a problem because otherwise you'd have to use a certificate. You had to distribute that certificate. You had to manage that. And not too many companies have their own certificate authority that they maintain according to the best practices, which are a bit cumbersome these days. Yeah, and I, I really like this option of using Azure Active Directory um, because you can connect to, to all the resources using your normal work account, if, if that is what you want to use. And it kind of gives you this native Azure AD authentication, but it should be noted. I think if it's still the case, uh, this is how we set it up and what's a requirement when we set it up that uh, it only supports using the OpenVPN protocol and Windows 10 requires that uh, you use the Azure VPN client which is a, an app you can download from Microsoft. 
what I really like about this approach, though, is you can leverage conditional access. You can leverage multi-factor authentications. So all the things that you have or a lot of things you have for your accounts already set up can be leveraged. So conditional access based on perhaps your location or the device or you know, the specific parameters around your account and, and, and also then requiring MFA to sign into the VPN. I think these are all good points. Whereas the certificate approach is if someone gets that certificate and the password, they can set this up and, and access the resources. So I really like this integration with Azure AD because you can enable MFA and also make use of whatever conditional access protocols or, or policies you've already set up. So I like that. And just to mention there, because there's probably someone listening in and saying, well, I'm not on Windows 10. I'm not on Windows 11. I'm actually on a Macintosh or Mac, however you call them these days. So there are, I believe, three protocols that are supported by uh, point to site and that's OpenVPN. And it's a SSTP or a secure socket tunneling protocol and IKEA V2 VPN. So if you're using a Mac device, you should be able to use the IKEA V2 uh, VPN or the OpenVPN protocol. These are fairly standard protocols and OpenVPN is pretty much accessible everywhere. I think you can use that from Android, iOS, Windows, Linux, and Mac devices. So pretty much all the devices I can think of. So as long as you have support for OpenVPN, you can set up VPN point to site to your Azure resources. But before you start doing it, take a look at the authentication requirements. So if you want to leverage, for example, multi-factor authentication using your Azure AD account, make sure that the protocol you're selecting has support for that. I, I really like this. And I really like this integration, making things a lot easier. Use the account you have, use the policies you already set up, use MFA, just connect. Uh, I, I really like this. I openly admit that I'm not actively using any any Mac devices myself. I, I, I have an iPad, but I, I, I barely use that. So I haven't configured the point to site to a non-Windows device. But now that you mentioned both the Linux and Mac OS, this might be something to look into as well. And I, I feel, this is just a hunch, I feel that if you want to use the OpenVPN client, not part of Windows 10 or 11, that then you need to do a bit of configuration, either with the certificate or utilizing a Radius authentication endpoint as well in order to get this, this, this working. So with point to side, an interesting aspect is the always on VPN tunnel. So for years and years, companies have been using direct access meaning that let's open an IPv6 tunnel to, to whatever on-premises endpoint. So any traffic that should belong inside the corporate network is routed through that gateway, and any public traffic is routed through the public internet gateway endpoint on the device. And, and since direct access is, is sort of, how do you say it politically correctly? Is it being sunset or at the end of times nowadays? you can now use that always on VPN tunnel, meaning that you can create a device tunnel or a user tunnel that utilizes the point to site VPN. The device tunnel is that the device connects the moment it's turned on. And the user tunnel is that the user signs in and it automatically then connects. And I believe that the, the, the strong recommendation here is to utilize Intune 
to manage those devices, drop the configuration, and then decide if you want to use the device channel or the user channel. And the benefit here, obviously, is that the user doesn't have to go to network settings and manually connect to VPN. It's always running because it's an always on VPN channel. Cool. Yeah, I'm sort of thinking VPN is such well understood in the sense it's been around for about 20 years now. And the point to site and site to site VPN have existed in Azure for what, nine, 10 years already, that I'm still frequently seeing this sort of work happening in Azure, but it's not as common now than it used to be five or seven years ago. So I, I think we've sort of exhausted the essence of this. In the show notes, we'll add the resources from Microsoft Docs on some of these more exotic use cases. And I will also put the link to Tailscale if somebody wants to try that out. If you are a single user with a limited amount of devices, I, I think it was maybe 20 devices, then Tailscale is free of charge. Alrighty. So the last thing, the unexpected question. And um, let me ask you, Toby. So I, I believe you know the party boats, the cruise ships that travel between Helsinki and Stockholm. You hop in the boat, typically during the evening, you spend the night there and in the morning you arrive at the other city. So if I hop in the boat in Helsinki, I arrive in Stockholm. Then I can spend the whole day in Stockholm and in the evening I retreat back to the boat and we travel back to Helsinki on the next night and you have unlimited buffet food and bars and live music and that sort of thing. But the key here, and, 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 and this, this is what everybody who has experienced those boats know, you have a tiny little cabin where you can sleep. And the question thus is, how much strawberry jam could you fit in a tiny cabin like that? Very specific. Um... You know, I'm going to answer this slightly differently and say that it's going to be about 30,000 cans of jam. Why? Because right now the supply chain is suffering and the strawberry season is over in Sweden and Scandinavia in general. So we cannot get fresh strawberries anymore in Scandinavia at this point. So we have to import them. And the supply chain does not import more than 30,000, I believe, in any given instance. So unless we have to use old or frozen strawberries in order to get the jam, then the, the ready-made, ready-to-be-shipped, conserved jam that we can get, I think, is around 30,000 cans. So that's what I would say. And I think each can is perhaps 350 to 500 grams. So that is my final answer. Very vague. That's a great answer. I, I haven't been on a boat like this in years. Uh, often companies do their Christmas parties there and whatnot, but obviously we haven't been doing those too much lately. But the next time... If I'm doing such a cruise from Helsinki to Stockholm and back, we'll bring the jam. <laughs> I, I will bring one tiny can of jam, put it on the table of the cabin, and try to mentally, mentally extrapolate based on this information. Would it be 30,000? Perhaps so. To follow up on that, the question was how much strawberry jam, not how many cans of jam, right? So I, mm -hmm. I just said 30,000 cans, but you would have to open all of them and pour it out. Because yeah. then you can fit a lot more. Indeed, um, indeed. Right. So because then you can feel all the, the caveats in there and, and whatever. So if you do go on the on the trip and you do bring a, a can, you have to pour it out on the table, not keep it in the can, just to 
get a real sense of what it would look like. I, I didn't have a plan to go on on such a cruise, but now I'm thinking about this and Honest. perhaps, <laughs> you know, actually we need to go the next weekend and actually experience this. Alrighty, this was fun as always. Thank you for joining us and uh, we hope you join us next week as well. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.